guys, I don't have a long time this morning to wrap up this series we've been in called Eye to Eye, um, and I'm super excited about it. This has been a learning thing for me as I've, I've, I've wrestled with these topics myself. Uh, we started by understanding that Israel's great prophet Isaiah had prophesied that when the Messiah came, the Savior of the world came, those that were looking for him would begin to see the Messiah and their circumstances, their world, in similar fashions. Isaiah coined the phrase then, they would see things eye to eye. And that's been our goal, right? We've been looking together, attempting over these four weeks to see our world the way Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah that has come, saw his. To adjust our worldview, how we see things in our world, to his. To see our world, to interpret things in it that happened to us the way Jesus did and does. Because here's what we know. I, I mean, this is kind of one-on-one about this series. If you don't understand this, you're going to miss the whole point. The way you see your world, okay, your worldview, since it's the grid, and I'm going to show you the grid, through which you run your circumstances, your worldview is what's behind every decision that you make in your life, big ones and even small ones every day. And when you pile up those decisions over a lifetime, those decisions, they decide your destiny. Your worldview is, is about as important a thing as, as we can discuss in here. Now, the scriptures are replete with warnings about this truth. I want you to, to, to understand how important it is. From the Old Testament book of Proverbs, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. That's the power of your thoughts. How you see things, what you think about them, determine who you are. The writer of Proverbs gets, gets uh, many uh, theologians believe it was King Solomon. That was the son of Israel's great King David. The scriptures refer to him as the wisest man who ever lived. He actually gives a little more details about the importance of, of your thought process related to your worldview. He says, tune your ears to wisdom and concentrate on understanding. There's an effort there. Tune, concentrate, cry out for insight and understanding. How about this? Search for them as you would for lost money or hidden treasure. Do you sense the urgency and the value and the priority of wisdom? Then, King Solomon said, you'll understand what it means to fear the Lord and you'll gain knowledge of God. For the Lord grants wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He grants a treasure of good sense to the godly. It's not just Old Testament accounts that talk about the importance of how you see things. The Apostle Paul writes most of the New Testament after the four, four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Here's what Paul said to the fledgling church that had been planted in Rome. He said, listen, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, what they do, how they see things, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you're going to know what God wants you to do, and you know how good and pleasing and perfect his will for you really is. I mean, Paul just echoes the Proverbs again. The way you think, as you think, so shall you be. Now, if you remember week one, we talked about the importance of the worldview, and I drew you a chart. Now, I cleaned this one up a little bit since if you were here week one, it was a little bit sloppy. So this week, I wanted to uh, just circle back to it for a second, but I wanted to look at the worldview we've been developing over these bunch of weeks and compare it to maybe two predominant worldviews that are out in our culture today, right? And so here's what we've been talking about together. I knew you all can't see it perfectly. 
um, and I know it's really small, but I just wanted to get a sense, and, and if this matters to you, you can come up and snap a picture of this afterwards and, and use it as a way of training your mind. We looked at the fact that Jesus' worldview, the way he saw his world, was God-centered, right? That God exists. And we looked at all the proofs of God's existence, right? And why it makes a lot more sense to believe in God than not to believe in God. That the world, right, that God existed in three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that if you remember, that God is both love and that God is a, that God judges because he is just. And if you have a God of love, you have to, by definition, have a God that would judge or you just have a God of indifference. So we had a God-centered world, right? God created the world. He is the creator God. He created man in his image. He created man on purpose with a purpose. He created men and women. He saw value in masculinity and femininity. He said they were both good. And as a result of having an absolute God that absolutely created things, we therefore know there are absolutes, especially absolute truth. And that restraint, restraining ourselves to live within our created bounds was what would bring life for us. We talked about the problem. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. The world is sin-stained because of our individual brokenness, right? That a Savior has been sent. That the, the problem with the world is solved through Jesus, through transformation, through something that happens within us, right? And that all of the pain and sorrow and misery in the world is this is not the way God created the world to be. It's that way because of sin, of brokenness. We talked about heaven, that our eternal home is not here on this earth, that we live with our eyes set towards another place, that how we live here impacts how we'll live forever. That the earth is a temporary home for us. It's almost like we're camping here, right? This is not our eternal home. We are merely stewards of this place. And we have a purpose for our lives while we're here. We talked about how transformation is possible. That Jesus comes to live within us. That Jesus is who he said he is. The way, the truth, and the life. And that nobody comes to, to the Father except through him. And that Christ's spirit dwells in us so that we now have the power to live like Christ. We can be changed. And because Jesus is who he said he is, that he is our king. He has authority in our lives, right? We can find his teachings in the scripture. That's why I brought Dr. Emmanuel in. The, the scriptures are author, authoritative. You can look to them and trust them, right? Jesus has authority in our life. He is the way. And if we live this way, our goal in it, our goal is holiness. And holiness doesn't mean you're walking around like in a robe and a collar. Holiness means that you are different. You are set apart, is really what it means, for the purposes and work of God in this world. Now, there are a lot of other worldviews out, out there. The predominant two I put up here, naturalistic, right? All that you see is all that there is. WYSIWYG, right? This is, you know, science-centered. God is not the center of this worldview. Science is the center of this worldview. All that matters, all that actually exists is what you can see, taste, measure, you know, that's it. And as a result, right, you're not created by God in the image of God on purpose and for a purpose. You were naturally created by random chance of an amalgam of matter, right? As a result, the problem is not the world being sin-stained. The problem is that we live in a Darwinian world where it's just survival of the fittest. Look out your window and see how the world is doing, right? It's survival of the fittest. 
What can you, what, what do you do? Well, here, the, here we solve the problem. Jesus solves the problem. Here, the problem, because it's, a, it's, it's kind of a, a Darwinian world, is strength saves. You got to figure out how to be stronger, right? Here we believe that life is eternal and you go on to a, to a better place and, and, and there's judgment. Here, your ending is the grave and your matter, you, you decompose and you become matter that'll eventually become something else. Here, your earth is both your home and your hope. Our hope is here. It's to be found here, right? Here, we believe Christ can transform us. Here, under, under a naturalistic worldview, you are nothing but the, but the coming together of a bunch of desires. So you have no free will. Any response you have is just a response to input data that's coming in, right? There's no transformation possible because you're just the sum total of matter. Here... Christ is king. Here, knowledge is king, right? The more I know about how this naturalistic world order works, right, the, that, the more better off I'll be. So therefore, I'm in constant pursuit, not of Jesus, but of knowledge, which, when it all works out right, means you will exist. You'll survive, right? That's kind of that's the end game, existence for, for, for humanity. And the last one we talked about a lot is the individualistic mindset. I've been joking about this one. You do you, boo, right? Like, whatever you think is right, you do for you, I do for me, as long as we don't hurt anybody. Person-centered, self-created, right? Like, it's about actualization of myself. Circumstance-stained. It's not sin that's the problem. It's, we could come up with a lot of things. Poverty is the problem, right? Um, anger is the problem. Their circumstances are the issues. And so it's not that you need a savior, it's just that you need anger management, right? There are different solutions you can bring to the problem. They can be found, but they're not found in transformation. They're found in practical things of the world. Your, your eternity is ambiguous. Who knows? You might become, you might be reincarnated. You know, there's probably something out there, but who knows? And since we don't know, we can't really cling to any absolute truth, because who would know, right? Um, the earth here, this is the only life that matters since it's ambiguous about what happens. Everything we think about is, gonna, is just basically how it plays out on this world, right? Christ's life is what transforms us here. No transformation is possible here. Here the goal is to transform worldly systems, right? If we could just break down the worldly systems and get them to work right, then the problems would be fixed. Here... It's not that Jesus is king. It's not that knowledge is king. Here your heart is your king. Just follow your heart. And the goal, I just want to be happy. And so those are the worldviews we've gone over. Here's the problem, and we all know this. For most of us, we want to think like Jesus. We want to have his worldview about things. But what we tend to do is we know these things, but we want some of these things. And so what we tend to do is mix Worldviews. We have a Jesus worldview, but we practice naturalistic worldview policies, right? We live, for example, oftentimes like earth is our home, and so happiness becomes our pursuit. And then God's job is just to make us, keep us happy. And we honor and follow him to the extent that he does that. This is what worldviews do. There are millions of examples of this blending of views. Philosophers call it Christian syncretism. Our neighbors call it Christian hypocrisy, where we say, we believe this, but then we go and live like we don't, right? And we're all guilty of it to one degree or another. This side says, be holy. 
This side says, be happy. And as I said to you week one, if I asked all of you when you came in here, what did you want? If you could only have one thing for your children, you just want your children to be happy. We begin to mix worldviews, right? Of course you want your children to be happy, but happiness is actually found in finding your purpose for life. All right? Now, here, here's, here's what I want to do. I want to leave you with four thoughts then on this concept of if we actually lived like this, how then would we live? What would it practically look like, right? So here's the first one I, I, I want to give you, the first of four conclusions. The first is build your house. We just sang this, and the band didn't know I was preaching on this today. They didn't know this was in the sermon. Build your house on the rock. See, Christians call it Christian syncretism, or, or philosophers call it Christian syncretism. Our neighbors call it Christian hypocrisy. But, a G, but Jesus had a term for this concept of mixing worldviews, where we take some of this, and 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 we wind up in here, what I call this Matthew 7 zone, okay, where, where this zone of hypocrisy, this zone of syncretism, Here's what Jesus said. Everybody who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. Oh, that was a wonderful series, John. I learned so many things. Everyone who hears these words of mine but doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. What is the key word there? Practice. Put them into practice. Jesus says if you put them into practice in the same teaching, you'll be like a man who builds his house on the rock. The storms of this life, external circumstances, will have no impact on your joy and your peace and your hope. If you would practice this, build your life. We just sang that we're building our lives on this. I'm telling you, if we would build our lives on this, the result, right? The result, fear begins to fade. Worry begins to wane. Anxiety starts to flee. But just having a correct worldview is not going to do that. Doing it practicing, making decisions in our life predicated on these things. That's the key. And look, let's just be honest. Like, I'm, you know, listen, if I'm, I'm nothing, I'm honest. I'm just going to tell you. Living like this is going to cost you something. I mean, it results in holiness. It results in you being a little different and set apart. I mean, you can pick any component of that mindset that you want to pick. And once you put it into practice, it'll have real costs. It's easy to see, right? If there are absolute truths, right? That means there are absolute moral truths. Jesus taught them. You can find them in the scriptures. Dr. Emmanuel came out here and showed us why we could believe the Bible, why the Bible what the Bible contains, and that these things are authoritative in our lives. And since there are moral truths, there are moral truths then about the way we live, the choices we make. I could pick all kinds of different ones then. There are moral truths about your bodies what you do with them, how you treat them, how we let others treat them. Make no mistake about it, your worldview speaks to your sexuality. Your worldview determines who you have sex with. It does. Now, this is where Christians, right, we, we like to worry about who other people are having sex with. But, but us, like, it's like, well, I'm going to be, you know, when it comes to sex and money, we tend to like this zone right here, 
as Christians. That tends to be where we live. I know what he says, and I believe it. Just a little lax on the practice. It will cost you something. It might cost you a relationship. It might cost you physical pleasure. I mean, here's the truth. It might cost you earthly human love. But you remember the fish that I had up here that one day and I took him out of the water because the fish just wanted to be free? Who was to tell him that his life should be constrained by, you know, somebody's choice that, that he be in the water? And we saw what happens. You die when you operate out of the way you were created to live. When we operate outside of the bounds of the absolute truth. And so in, in this world, restraint is a good thing. Somehow it became a four-letter word. Restraint is good. It's not bad. It helps us to operate within the bounds of our creation. I could go on and on with this. But here's what your job is. Your job is to take this worldview, these truths, and put them into practice. I mean, if we push back against one of the cultural mindsets, with this one would be consumerism, right? I mean, go home and just flip the TV on. Consumerism's everywhere. And, and, and if we have this mindset, we realize that we are mere stewards of everything. Nothing is our own. It's just been given to us by God. And we're not supposed to use it for our own blessing. We're supposed to use it for the purposes of God because we were made on purpose, with a purpose, for this world because this earth is not our long-term home, but we, we are stewards of it. And if you follow that, if you take your stuff, your money, your time, your talents, your treasures, and you realize they're not your own, and you invest them in this broken world, it will cost you something. But there is life and purpose and peace and joy that's actually found there. You're living in your design. Will you build your house on the rock of Christ, on the truth? or the sinking sand of blended worldviews, of choosing our own mindsets for whatever our circumstances currently dictate. If you, the scriptures say there's two distinct outcomes to doing this. Paul wrote of this warning to Titus, speaking of these, I'll call them sand people. They claim to know God, he told Titus, but their actions, they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. That's pretty strong. But Jesus declared the potential of a different way. He said, you know, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they could see your good deeds and then they will glorify your Father in heaven. To be holy means to be different than everybody else. Not in a weird way, but set apart. And when you live like this, when you live like foreigners in a distant land, people will notice, and the result is very clear. When you act differently than everybody else, people will notice. By the way, sometimes to the church's shame we've done that, right? But when you act in a line with the values of the kingdom, you get a very different result than what the church is currently known for in the clash of cultural worldviews. Right? The church, is, it's often known for its sinking adherence to Jesus' worldview. We haven't shown our good deeds. We haven't glorified God. More on that in a second. But if we would not just know the truth, but if we would put this truth into practice, imagine 
if the, I don't know, last, last week there was 500 people here in person. There was a, a hundred and some online. And so that's just one Sunday. But I don't know, there's a lot of you floating around this church. Imagine if somebody, if this church all of a sudden started living like this. Don't you think people would notice? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people started being different? Of course they would. You know who else would notice? Your wife. Your kids. Your boss. And you know what it would do to them? It would make God attractive to them. So number one, build your house on the rock. Number two, in the world we live in, be alert and discerning. Build your house on the rock. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a sad person. But number two, be alert and discerning. We are bathed in, washed in, fully, wholly immersed in cultural philosophies and worldviews. And here's the truth. They sound good. Oftentimes, the people that espouse them are really smart, right? And, I, and, and I, I'll actually even in, in, tell you this. Most of those worldviews come, come with, today, what I would argue is a sense of moral, moral superiority to Jesus' worldview. They would argue their worldview is, is better. It's, it's, not only, um, it's not only more scientifically provable, but it's more morally good. That's the truth. And if you don't understand the components of the way Jesus sees things, and why it's not just one way to see things, but it's the truth. It's the truth. It's easy to get confused. This is common in the New Testament. Paul was constantly writing to churches he planted that got caught up in a different worldview from the cities they were in. Here's what he wrote to the Colossians. See to it, he said. Beware. Jesus would up and say, be on the lookout that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depend on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. There are other worldviews, and they're driven by human tradition. Of course they are. And, and here's a couple of them. Naturalism, individualism. But there's more. There's consumerism, right? Humanism. We'll pick up in a minute uh, uh, on, on these spiritual forces. But these worldviews sound good. They make sense. Our neighbors and friends, this is important, okay? Your kid that comes home from college, your neighbor, in the, off, your neighbor your, the guy in the cube next to you that you can't believe he thinks what he thinks, they are not evil people or bad people or dumb people. They too, most of them, you know what they want? They want good for their kids too. You know what they want? They just want their kid to be happy too. And they want their communities to do well. But don't you see that when you start with God-centered and God-created, right, you're going to wind up in a very different place than if you start with science-centered and naturally created or person-centered and, er, person and self-created. You're going to wind up in very different places. When your desired outcome moves from holiness to happiness, right, it's going to drive different decisions. You are going to think differently. Paul told the church in the city of Ephesus, it's a problem in every city, right? In Colossae, he said to them, make sure nobody takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Here's what he told the Ephesians. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Walk as children of light, 
For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. To the Colossians, he goes, look, you got to be aware there are things that are going to come at you and they're going to sound good and they're going to be driven by kind of humanistic policies. He told the Ephesians, look, you've got to discern. You've got to use discernment when you see your world. How do you get better discernment? This is going to sound familiar. The writer to the Hebrews spoke about growing up, growing in our understanding of the scriptures to not just remain children. He said, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained. How? Practice. Constant practice. When we live like sand people, right, we're not practicing this, and so our ability to discern falsities and false worldviews and false mindsets, it's warped. How do you not get tricked or fooled? You practice Jesus' worldview over and over and over. When you have a decision, you go, hold on. Let me make this decision in accordance with these things. So you don't get tricked. You teach this to your kids. You teach your children a, a Jesus worldview. You teach them how Jesus sees the world. But then do you know what you do? You go and live that way. You teach them, but then you make sure they see it. Discernment. Watch what you're letting in, Paul says. Take every thought captive, the scriptures say, and you make it obedient to Jesus. You don't let every thought come into your house. Guard your heart. Guard your mind. Guard your home. Teach yourself and your kids why following your heart, for example. That's the battle cry of the individualistic world. Follow your heart. When that comes into your home, you go, whoa, 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 whoa. You stop, you turn the Kardashians off for a minute, and you have a moment. And you say, that, that is a worldview that is not a Jesus worldview. You don't follow your heart. You follow Christ, right? So you teach them that way. You help them discern. You watch what you put before your eyes and your ears. Watch who you let influence you. When you're sitting on your couch at night, taking it all in, whatever echo chamber news channel you're watching that just tells you what it is you want to believe, right? Use an ounce of discernment and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Am I getting fed something here that's not actually true? What worldview is getting promoted to me right now that I'm just taking in? It's a big deal. Such a big deal. Paul actually felt the need to pray about it. For, for, for the churches that lived in the cities that he started the churches in. But I think for us, too, he said, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, discernment leads me to the third point. The third point is what Paul told the Corinthians about discernment. He said, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Jesus' worldview was that man in his natural state was broken due to sin. In fact, he was spiritually dead. We did not think like God, act like God. Heck, we didn't even want God in our natural state. But through faith... 
trust, belief, transformation, a new life is possible within us, a new nature, a new birth. Paul's point, unless you have this transformation in your life, right, unless you've had this experience and come to this saving faith in Christ and his spirit is birthed in you, right, if you don't have that, the worldview of Jesus is going to look stupid to you. Just being honest, it would. Without the Spirit of God opening your eyes, these other philosophies are going to prevail. And why? Well, because our neighbors and our friends and our family and our kids are looking for solutions to the brokenness and pain of our world just like you and I are. And thus, they're naturally, just like Christ followers do way too often anyway, naturally they're going to pursue natural solutions. just like we do way too often. What Paul's saying is, he's saying the answer to the reason we haven't been able to be salt and light to our communities, even though we, we say we believe in Jesus' worldview, here's the, here's the reason. Point one, build your house right. Point two, be alert and discerning. Point three, when it comes to competing and conflicting worldviews, battle the right enemy. Listen, this is so important, okay? Your neighbor is not your enemy. He's not. That is a worldview that is getting hoisted on us incrementally, and it is a lie from the pit of hell. Your neighbor is not the problem. Paul explained it to the church in Ephesus this way. He goes, look, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. People aren't the problem but against rulers and against authorities and against powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. People who see things differently than those who have a Christian worldview are not the enemy. They're not even the problem. But that is incrementally who the church has set its sights on. Here's what Jesus knew about his world. All that you see is not all that there is. The naturalistic worldview says that that's true, right? All that there is is what I can see, touch, taste, or hear, or measure Jesus said no. Of course he did, because his father couldn't be measured, right? But he knew him intimately. Jesus understood, and friends, this is where we have to join him in this understanding. All that we see is not all that there is. There are spiritual realities. There are spiritual forces. There are powers of good and evil in the world. And while we're all impacted by them, and sometimes we wind up over here, and we wind up following them, right? Sometimes... We do that, but we have to understand that when we, when we get back to the Jesus mindset, people are not our enemy. Our job is to acquire, and not to acquire the worldview of Jesus, so you can go out now, okay, now I got it right. Now I can go out and really let them have it, right? That's not it. Paul's super clear about this. <laughs> These verses are unbelievable. He goes, look, I wrote to you in my letter to, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters, because in that case, you would have to leave the world. He wrote to this church in the city of Corinth, which was a city just full of licentiousness, right? And, and, and they were driven by very diverse worldviews, not Christ-like worldviews at all. And so when Paul wrote to this church and he said, listen, don't have anything to do with people that are immoral, essentially, he goes, whoa, 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 you misunderstand me. I wasn't talking about people out there. 
They're not the problem. I'm talking about you guys. Paul wants us to judge people inside of the church, each other in a sense, so that we can kind of encourage one another not to walk that way. Paul goes, why are you judging people outside of the church? That doesn't even make any sense. Of course they see things differently than you do. Of course they have a different worldview. It comes from an, a natural nature. My concern isn't, I'm not here to judge people outside the church. Why would I think they would act differently than their nature? Paul, Paul would go on to say, I struggle acting differently than my nature. And how about this line, okay? Boy, could you imagine if the church ever adopted this line? Politicians wouldn't know what to do with our voting block anymore. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Can you imagine that? What, what, why would I be worried about what they're doing? What business of mine is it what they're doing? See, I, I think if Paul were around today in our culture war-oriented world, he'd, he'd say to the church, the heck are you guys doing? You don't war people. You don't fight people. You don't battle people into faith in Christ. It's not how you're going to win anybody to Jesus. Nobody got beat up into believing, right? You don't do it by degrading or denouncing or de decrying people. My concern, if for those of you inside who pick and choose your worldviews, we do it like it's a, a buffet at Golden Corral, right? Like, I'll have some of this, and I'll have a little of that. I'm not a big fan of that, so I'm going to leave that there, right? We don't win this way. You don't win people to Christ by fighting them over the way they see things, the way they act. It's almost none of our business. They're not the problem, and they're not the enemy. Here's what Paul said to the same church. He goes, instead, how about this? By the humility and gentleness of Christ... Oh, boy. I appeal to you. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. You hear that? We don't do that. The weapons we fight with aren't the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension, every claim that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every, because we need this too, we have to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. How do you live in a world of competing worldviews, how do we challenge them? With humility and gentleness. Anybody ever told you that one before? This is a spiritual battle. We don't demolish people. We demolish arguments. We demolish claims, right? So that people can come to God. We don't demolish people. Which leads me to the final point. One, once we worry about ourselves first, right, we understand who the real enemy is, then how do we live? We have to understand this. Bridges beat bunkers every time. Paul's saying, what I told you not, not to associate with people who live differently, outside the bounds of a morality driven by Jesus' worldview, I wasn't talking about people outside of the church. You wouldn't be able to talk to anybody then, he said. I'm talking about the people in here. Don't hang around with hypocrites. Don't build bunkers and hunker down to fight against others outside. Instead, you build bridges to people who think like this. You don't write nasty Facebook posts about them. This is so funny, man, because I'm, I live in one community and I work in another community. 
You know, each community has its liberal Facebook page and its conservative Facebook page, and I'm on both of them. So if you think you're writing something and Pastor John's not seeing it, you're sadly mistaken. And it's literally, they exist to just beat the hell out of each other, right? This is what we do. And the shame of it is when we do it in the name of Jesus. Here's a verse many of you know. Always be prepared to give an answer to everybody who asks you to give them reason for the hope that you have. Amen, pastor. You got to be ready to let them know the truth. You need to just preach the whole truth. You do. But he, Peter went on. He said, but do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so those who speak maliciously against your good behavior on Facebook may be ashamed of their slander. Keep a clear conscience. Don't live in here so that people can't say you're a hypocrite. And second of all, treat others who view the world differently than you, right? You debate worldviews in the public sector with gentleness and respect. Paul said humility and gentleness. Peter says gentleness and respect. Don't you begin, I, I'm hoping that you begin to see when, as we finish this up, right? What has happened to the church, we have been used like rubes, treated by the left and right as voting blocks. We have believed a great lie that our neighbors who think and act differently are the enemy, and thus we just need to fight like hell. We gotta battle them, we gotta call them all kinds of names. Gin up accusations. Do you know what they want to do? This is not of Christ. This is not his worldview. Nor will this prevail. Nobody ever got beat up into following Jesus. They only got turned off and turned away. Jesus' great command, the one he said that all the other commands hung on, it does not evaporate when it comes to worldviews and political disagreements. We have one marching order. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater. Paul would go on to call it the law of Christ. As I've loved you, love one another. The way we live in a world of competing and conflicting worldviews, it's got to reflect this. If it doesn't, I don't even know what we're doing anymore. We're just letting our flesh, our natural side, get riled up. And it's just pushing us towards our own ends, not Jesus' ends. Listen, we are not here to win a culture war. That's not a win. It's not even our fight. Does it matter? Of course it matters. I have kids. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. But that's not our win, nor do we fight with the weapons we're currently fighting with. You can't win that way. What should our strategy be? What should our win be? Well, in, in the morally corrupt city of Corinth, here's how Paul explained it, right? And I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to like it because it's gentle and humble and respectful, and nobody likes to fight that way. I'm a guy, too. I get angry and fed up, and I love it when people tell me, oh, we got to fight. Yeah, count me in. Until I go and read how Jesus dealt with people. Until I follow Paul all around the first century world. And somehow it was completely different. Here's what Paul said in a really corrupt city, in a really bad culture. He said, though I'm free and I belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everybody. Paul goes, look, there's a lot of slaves around. I'm free. I don't owe anybody anything. I can do whatever I want. Nobody controls me. Yet, I've made myself a slave 
to everybody. Everyone, I've decided to place myself under everybody, to put myself second, to go after them, to willfully and joyfully serve others. You know Jesus watched Judas' feet, right? People I like and people I don't like. Yeah, I serve them all. People who love me and persecute me, love them all. People who are good and moral and people that are bad and corrupt, there is no one I won't come under with gentleness, humility, and respect. Oh, but Paul, how are you going to win a culture war if you don't fight? If you don't argue and belittle? I mean, Paul, why would you do that? What could living like that amongst them possibly do? Well, Paul says something interesting. I'll tell you what it could do. He goes, I'm not trying to win a culture war. I'm doing this to win as many as possible. Paul says, I'm not trying to win arguments. I'm trying to win souls. I'm trying to win sons and daughters back to God. The enemy is different than you thought it was. You need to fight differently. He goes on, look. He goes, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Those that were in charge of the temple system in Jerusalem that Paul was against. But he goes, look, I honor and respect them. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I'm not under the law. Why? So I could win those under the law. Same thing, Paul says, right? I'm not under the Old Testament ceremonial laws, but those who are living under them, I get along with them. I'm humble and gentle, and I serve them too. To those not having the laws, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, most of us in this room, right? Paul says, I became like one of those. Though I'm not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. There it is. Paul understands, now I live in all situations with all people under a new law. And even those who vehemently disagree with me, right, those who I have huge moral conflicts with and religious conflicts with, what do I do? I love them the way Jesus loved me. Oh, gosh. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak I have become all things to all people. Which sounds awful wishy-washy, doesn't it? I've learned to build bridges, relationships, friendships with every kind of person of every kind of background, faith, moral persuasion, political position, color, race, creed, party. I have chosen bridges, not bunkers. And why? So that by all possible means, I might save some. Paul is saying the win is not to win a cultural battle. That's not the win, and that's not how you're going to change the world. But the politicians on the left and the politicians on the right are trying to sell you stuff or get your vote, and they will convince you otherwise. And I know somebody's going to go, come on, Paul. You're not going to change the world that way. You're going to change the world through being humble and kind and loving like a servant. That didn't work for Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Maybe it did. I think we've been duped. I'll close with this. There is only one other time when Paul mentions the law of Christ. He actually says, here's how you fulfill it. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Breaking news. I know this is going to rock your world. Do you know why most people that have a different political leaning than you do, do you know why their worldview is different than yours? You're going to be shocked when I tell you. You're going to be shocked. It's not because they're stupid. It's not. It's not because they have low IQs. It's because their life experiences, the way they were raised, their parents, their circumstances, their burdens in this life have led them to different conclusions, different worldviews, different solutions. 
Paul says, you want to fulfill the law of Christ? You want to learn to love people the way Jesus loved? Carry somebody else's burden. Understand their heart, where they're coming from, why they believe the way they believe. Understand their hearts for, you can make up the issue that you're against, left or right. Understand their hearts for their gay son. Hear their heart about their deported wife. Wife. Will it change your mindset? Probably not. Should it change your worldview? Listen to me. Absolutely not. But will it help you fulfill the law of Christ to love your neighbor as yourself and maybe win them over to Jesus? You'll never know till you try. Paul said to the Galatians, if you bite and devour each other, watch out, you're going to destroy each other. It's election week, Tuesday night, you're going to watch that play itself out all night long. But here's what he told the Philippians in closing. He said, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Stop arguing, stop devaluing, stop devouring one another. Why? So that you might become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And I know you hear this stuff today and you're like, man, John, do you understand how bad it is out there today? Do you know what they're saying and teaching? I mean, I, I know. And you want me to serve them and submit to them and love them with humility? Do you even get how bad it is? I think Paul would say, yeah, I just told you. Warped and crooked generation. I get it. But church, if you will do this, and I want you to imagine Mendham Hills Community Church right now. In our community of Chester and Mendham and Long Valley and Randolph, where we're all in our little echo chambers of whatever our worldview thought is. If we would do this, then he says, you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. You, your hope is not how things work out on Tuesday night. Honestly, it doesn't really matter what the heck the results are on Tuesday night. They're going to change again in two years when the wave goes the other way, and then two years after that, they'll swing back another way. For, for Jesus' sake, for the sake of our friends, for the sake of our families, for the sake of our community, for the sake of our children, let's let their souls be the win. And as a church, let's shine like the stars in the sky. Let's stand and close the song.